Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts 14. We're going to look at Acts 14, 1 to 28. Before we get there and before I pray, let me just urge all of us to vote, if you haven't already, on Tuesday. We need to impact the republic that you and I live in. And one of our primary ways is to vote our conscience. And that way we are salt and light for the Lord. And so it's not only our civic duty, it's really a biblical duty given to us to be salt and light in our communities, in our state, in our nation. So I would urge all of us to vote. Let's bow, shall we, in a word of prayer. Father God, I do pray for the elections that are coming up. I pray that the women and men across the country that you desire to be in Congress, in the House, in the Senate, to be in governorships, to be in local legislation, legislatures, I pray that those individuals would be elected, that you would use your people to vote wisely, to vote biblical truth and conscience sake and to honor you this way, to honor our nation this way. And Father, regardless of who is put or kept in power, we know that we are commanded to pray for those who are in authority over us. And so we do so, Lord, and ask that you would give those women and men great wisdom. If they don't know you, bring them to a saving knowledge of you and allow our country to move more and more towards biblical truth rather than what seems to have been a trend for a while away from biblical truth. Father, we uh, ask that you would guide our time as we look at the book of Acts. Father, as we think of the persecuted church, and today's text just dovetails so much with those who have suffered for the gospel. We pray that you would be with those brothers and sisters in different, difficult, dark parts of our world. Allow them to be salt and light, protect them from evil, and allow the gospel, your kingdom, to go forth. Father, guide our time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Many years ago, I had the privilege of going to Ethiopia and parts of Sudan, It was before I was here at Highland, I was in another church. And while I was there, one of the joys I had was meeting for a handful of days with five Ethiopian pastors (coughs) and evangelists. They were individuals who had labored for years for the kingdom, and they had suffered greatly. None of them had formal biblical education. And so they relished the opportunity to spend time with someone who had been afforded really an unusually high amount of biblical education, at least by their standards. And although I couldn't answer all of their questions, it was a privilege to try and answer some. What was amazing to me is that these brothers in Christ had actually been writing down biblical, theological ecclesiastical or church questions 
sometimes for years or several decades, they had just collected these lists for a time when they would have somebody that might answer some of their questions. And they were insatiable. In my notes, I wrote that the days were 14 hours. In retrospect, I think they were longer than that. Uh, we didn't really take breaks for breakfast or lunch or dinner or, or anything. Just from the moment they could get to asking questions to the moment I finally fell asleep, they just hit me with question after question after question. They wanted to know this God. They wanted to know God's word. They wanted to know biblical truths and how to live them out. They loved God. Well, finally, on the last day, I flipped the switch and I said, hey, I need to learn about you. I'm so interested to hear what God has done in your lives. Time doesn't really mean much to these individuals. I think I told them they could take 20 or 30 minutes each, and I don't know how long they took, but they could have gone days, and, and I would have just been enraptured. It was unbelievable. Four of the five had lost a father or mother or both to martyrdom. The one that had not lost parents to martyrdom lost both parents because of their conversion. His parents were Muslims, and when he converted, they said, you are dead to me, dead to us, and they never spoke to him again. So in essence, all of them had lost a mother, a father, or a mother and father because of the cause of Christ. All five of them had lost at least one sibling to martyrdom. Several had lost spouses to martyrdom. One had lost the six closest members of his family. At the time he lived in Sudan, which at the time was one nation, not two like it is today. It was 91% Muslim, but they lived in a village that was Christian. A couple hundred Christians. And without warning, helicopter gunships surrounded their village and opened fire. And his father and mother and four siblings were among the couple hundred that were murdered that day. And here they were, serving the Lord. They had been stoned, they had been beaten, they had lost jobs, and they pressed through it all, through it all. The Sunday I was there, I had the privilege of preaching in the only Christian church. It was a village way up north in Ethiopia. My recollection, it was a village of 1,700 with 100 Christians and the rest were Orthodox. And while I was preaching, it was a corrugated steel building. All of a sudden, the stones were being hurled against the building. They were stoning the building. Now, I've never experienced stoning. I've had some parishioners I thought might try and stone me, probably deservedly so. But I'd never actually experienced stoning but they just urged me on. It was an every week occurrence while their service was going on. P 
people in their village stoned their village or their church within their village. I was saddened by how these individuals were treated and yet I saw them through it all press on for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Almost 2,000 years earlier, we're going to see Barnabas and Paul on what is called the first missionary journey press on through it all. Let me pick up in Acts 14. I want to read verses 1 to 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind <coughs> against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and of the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now thus far on the first missionary journey, we have Barnabas and Paul going to the island of Cyprus. And in the island of Cyprus, spiritually speaking, as far as we have recorded in Scripture, nothing happened. We've got to realize how discouraging that must have been for Barnabas. We learned all the way back in Acts chapter 4 that he was a Levite, he was of the priestly family, he was a priest in Cyprus. This is home turf, this is home territory. But some of us know what this is like. Some of us know that the most difficult individuals sometimes to reach with the gospel are family members. You say, no, I don't want to hear it. Don't talk to me about that. And that we pray for them and give an opportunity. We share Christ with them and we live Christ before them. And we pray and God slowly draws some of these loved ones to the Lord. It can be very difficult, unfertile ground, at least initially, when you're on home turf. From Cyprus, they went to Paphos. That's also on the island of Cyprus. And there we have one conversion family. I guess things are looking up. A conversion family is worth its weight in gold. Bring out the white rose. Love these conversion stories. And then they meet a sorcerer. His name is Bar-Jesus. Bar is the Hebrew word for son, son of Jesus. Someone who identifies with Jesus. And he causes all sorts of conflict. From there, they went to Pamphilius. Pamphilius is in the Galatia region. It's over in Turkey. You know, the book of Galatians is, is not to a particular city, but it's into a region area. This is the region. This is a tough area. It was known for marauders and bandits and malaria. And their band is not a band of two. It's a band of three. It's, 
It's Barnabas, it's Paul, and then it's John Mark, who is the cousin-nephew, same word, we're not sure <coughs> which. He's the cousin-nephew of Barnabas, and he deserts them. This has uh, really not been what he thought he signed up for. He's not going to go through it all. He's not going to press on, and he abandons them and goes home. It really hasn't gone very well. They've gone about 700 miles so far. They've covered several months. They face a sorcerer. They've kind of been treated as persona non grata. They've had one of their three members, a third of their group, abandon them. One known family has come to Christ. Humanly speaking, the first missionary journey doesn't seem like the Spirit is moving in a mighty way. But the Spirit moves as the Spirit moves. Sometimes in an overwhelming, miraculous way and sometimes slowly behind the scenes. But the Spirit does move. Well, in chapters 13, verses 42 to 52, Paul and Barnabas actually see many come to Christ. <coughs> They're in Pisidia, Antioch. Things were looking up. Indeed, in chapter 13, verse 44, it says this. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city set out to hear the word of the Lord. The results? Many Gentiles believed. Yes! And then some Jews riled up the crowds and succeeded in expelling the two missionaries from the city. So much for looking up. It's not going so well. So then we read the following in chapter 13, verse uh, 50. It says this. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up by persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. <sighs> Things seem to look up, and then they take a couple steps back. Well, converts were one, praise God. Barnabas and Paul were labeled persona non grata and shown the door. And now they need to move. This really brings us to chapter 14. So again, we've gone at this point, seven to 800 miles by sea and by land. We've seen them face a sorcerer. We've seen them be shown the city. They've lost one of their three members. They face bandits and marauders and malaria. One family has come to Christ. Some others have come to Christ, but then they were shown the door. And now they are in Iconium, and things seem to be going well. A great number of both Jews and Gentiles believe. That's verse 1. But then verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And then in verses 5 and 6, an angry mob becomes a raging mob. And Barnabas and Paul need to flee for their life yet again. This is really not going well, but they're pressing on through it all. Now I've got to ask myself, I wonder how 
new converts are stirred up against Barnabas and Paul. I wonder what was said, what accusations were hurled about the ministry of Barnabas and Paul. Ultimately, we can't know. But we have a few hints. There's something called the Apocrypha of the New Testament. Now that's different than the Apocrypha most of us are familiar with. The Apocrypha most of us are familiar with is uh, intertestamental writings from 200 BC to 100 AD that are considered canonical by the Russian and Greek Orthodox churches and the Roman church, but not by evangelicals or Lutherans. Uh, that's a different Apocrypha. The Apocrypha of the New Testament is not a workbook that anyone considers canonical. It's just some extra biblical writings. And there's something called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. And in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, it talks about when Paul was in Iconium. And it gives this apocryphal, untrue, I believe, story about Paul falling in love with a young gal and then the family trying to decide, is Paul a suitable suitor for their daughter? And the family is very divided. <laughs> now, I'm fairly sure it's apocryphal because it's written 200 years, two centuries after Paul's death. A little late to be telling us a romance story. But I wonder if what it does reveal is one of the strategies if you embrace Christianity, you'll split families. And in fact, Jesus said as much. He said sometimes it will split families because unbelievers will have a hard time accepting believers. So there's some truth to that. And maybe that was one of the strategies of those who opposed the gospel. Regardless, it is clear that Paul and Barnabas suffered greatly to advance the kingdom. They did it through it all. I think of the late Andre Crouch's song. It, it captures it well. It's through it all. Let me read it to you. I've been to lots of places, and I've seen lots of faces. There's been times I've felt so all alone. But in my lonely hours, yet those precious lonely hours, Jesus let me know that I was his own. For if I've never had a problem, I wouldn't know to trust in Jesus. Through it all, through it all. The whole idea of the song is no matter what the difficulty is, we are to press on through it all. Not around, not over, not between, not avoided, not removed. Through it all. I think about my Ethiopian pastor friends, evangelists, through it all. Through it all. I think about the persecuted church, through it all. Through it all. And while not minimizing the incredible suffering of some of them. I want to bring it to our level. We don't face that level of persecution, but I want to bring it to our low level <coughs> of toleration. Maybe, 
<laughs> maybe you serve in one white club. If so, thank you. And maybe you have endured a couple rambunctious kids every week. And you think to yourself, I can make better use of my Wednesday night than this. I want to throw in my towel because I'm not even getting across to them. And then you remember, maybe, maybe they are listening. Maybe someone's listening. Maybe I will have an internal, eternal impact on one or more of these children. And you press on through it all. Well done. Or maybe you serve in the nursery and you hold a colicky baby and the baby cries and you bounce it and hold it and pat its back. But you do more than that. You're praying for this baby that she or he at a very tender age would accept Christ, would not go to the right or the left, but would walk down the straight and narrow, would live for Jesus. And you're praying for the parents. They're tired. They're exhausted. Lord, allow Jeff to be typically boring. Let them have a nap today and get some rest. They need it through it all. And thank you. Or maybe you serve in PowerPoint, a pro presenter, and on a worship team or a videographer with sound. And that means you got to come to practice during the week and you got to get up early on Sunday and you got to stay for all the services. And, and you remember, you have the privilege of leading us into the presence of the Lord through it all. Or maybe you're in the school and things are being said. Culture is being taught. Or culture is being lived out that is antithetical to the word of God. Maybe you're at work and, and there's pressure to embrace things that are contrary to the word of God. And your job pressures or where you're located pressures contradict Scripture. And in a gracious way, you stand firm. Well done through it all. Paul and Barnabas are on a two-year trip. AD 45 to 47. Traveled 800 miles. Faced mobs. Faced a sorcerer. Faced indifference. Faced abandonment. Faced malaria and marauders and bandits. Faced it all. And they could be attempted to say, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. There's better things that I could do with my time. But through it all. Through it all. Well, as Paul and Barnabas are pressing on, let's us press on as well. Let me read verses 8 to 20. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had been made with faith, or he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. 
And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices. They said in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out to the crowd. They cried out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained from people offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged, <coughs> and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. The ministry at Lystra, it started well. We have this miracle, an incredible miracle. They see this man who hasn't walked from birth. They see that he has faith, and they have him stand up. And I think what they're probably expecting, what you and I would probably expect, is everyone would say, wow, what kind of God do you serve? Tell us about this great God. But that's not what happened. They immediately assume that they have God in their presence, but not God, but false gods, specifically Zeus and Hermes. <coughs> How could this be? What actually comes down to them for mythology Mythology is a story from the past, generally not rooted in much truth, but maybe from a cataclysmic event like a flood that has wiped out people, in this case, a localized flood, and then they attribute it to bad behavior by the people and discipline by the gods. And so there's this mythology that is probably several centuries old, but it was written down by a man named Ovid in his book Metamorphosis from 50 years earlier. And this is how the mythology uh, was told. Several centuries earlier, uh, Zeus and Hermes came down to Iconium and they dressed as humans. And they desired to stay in the village that night. And so they went to a house and said, can we lodge here and will you feed us? And they said, no. Well, it turns out they went to a thousand houses. And everyone said, no, we will not house you. We will not feed you. So on the outskirts of town, they found this hut that was made of straw and reed falling apart. And it had a, a man, Philemon, and his wife, Bacchus, in it. They were poor and elderly, and they said, can we stay with you? And they said, oh, please come in. We don't have much, but we'll feed you what we have. And they gave them a dinner. And the next morning, Zeus and Hermes gave them a palace with 
a gold roof and then sent a localized flood to kill the thousand other homes. Well, there was a localized flood several hundred years earlier and they attached this mythology to them. And this story was well known and suddenly they have two individuals who they think perform a miracle, but it's actually God performing it through them. And they think to themselves, we're not doing this again. The last time Zeus and Hermes visited us, we didn't honor them and lots of people died. No, no, no. And so immediately the priest of the temple of Zeus comes flying out. He has some oxen he wants to sacrifice. And you can imagine how heady this is. And this is kind of an upgrade, right? You've been shown the door. You faced bandits. You faced marauders. You've had the abandonment of one of your three workers. You've had all sorts of problems. You faced a sorcerer. You faced angry mobs. And suddenly, instead of people wanting to show you the door, they're calling you a god. And what a temptation to say, you know what? Let's just go with the flow, man. We'll get around to telling about the one true God, but let's build a little relationship. And, and by the way, we just need a little bit of R&R ourselves. And, and it doesn't hurt to, to have someone think a little bit highly of us finally for a change. We've been working hard. And that's how Satan often works. Satan often works in our lives when we allow ourselves to think we're something special, when we allow ourselves to think that what God is doing is because of us rather than because of God. And we pat ourselves on the back and, and we take credit for what God has done. It's a dangerous downward spiral. It's one of Satan's great tools. As I think of that kind of pride, I, I think of a man who got a new job. He's working at the Pentagon, and he has his new office, first day on the job. He hears a knock on the door, and he thinks, ah, I'm going to show these people how important I am. So he picks up the phone and pretends to have a conversation, and he calls that, come on in. And an orderly comes in, and he kind of says, just hold on. And he says, yes, General. Oh, absolutely, General. When I talk to the president later on today, I'll give him your regards. You have a good day, General. And he hangs up the phone. He says, yes, sir. What, what can I do for you, young man? And the young man says, oh, I'm, I'm just here to, to hook up your phone. And that's the way pride often works. My mom used to always say, pride cometh before a fall, a haughty spirit before a downfall. It's a proverb from Scripture. It's a reminder that once we start thinking we're something special, once we start thinking that we are doing things rather than God doing things through us. We have missed the mark. We have missed the mark. Not Barnabas, not Paul. Immediately they say, hey, no, no. We are not Zeus. We are not Hermes. Those are false gods. No, 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 no. We are men just like you. They rent their clothes. They point to the one who is worthy. And like a lover who is scorned, Potential worshipers who are scorned can turn quite violent. And in fact, they did. And they take Paul out. Not sure how Barnabas escapes this. But Barnabas or, goes one way and Paul gets stoned. They think he's dead, but 
by God's grace, he's spared. And this brings us to verses 21 to 28. It says this. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord to whom they had believed. When they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down <coughs> to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, and from there they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Wow. Did you pick that up? After enduring all of that, working through all of that, and reaching their end point, what do they do? What would you have done? They went back to all the churches on the way back. Really? Like where you were stoned? Like where you were facing an empty mob? Where you were abandoned? Where the bandits, the malaria, the marauders were? Where Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer, you went back to all of those places? Yes, through it all. Through it all. Verse 22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples. I love this. Sometimes we have a strong dichotomy between those who share the gospel and those who disciple. Probably by gifting, but the truth is, when we share the gospel and someone comes to Christ, it's our obligation to make sure they are strengthened in the faith. Paul, Saul, and Barnabas, they do that. Verse 22, they warn the people that tribulations are coming. I love this. They don't let them believe that Christianity is just a rosy free life. They essentially say what Paul teaches in 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted in Christ Jesus. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. And we've got to be firm in our faith. Third, they brought organization to the churches. Verse 23, they appointed elders for them in every church. Why? Because the bride is God's vision. God never never intended for people to go it alone. God always has intended for people to be tied closely to the church, to be in the church, to be involved and engaged within the life of the church. This is God's bride. And so they went back and appointed elders in the local churches. And then they prayed for the churches. <coughs> Verse 23, that's like 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. It says that, uh, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He just appointed them in the hands of God, entrusted them to the hands of God. And having fulfilled all the work, then they returned home. And of course, Paul will do two more missionary journeys. Barnabas will do at least one more 
missionary journey, but they went through it all. And I think one of the things we want to do is this. Look back over our Christian walk. Were we more committed five years ago than today? Were we more involved 10 years ago than today? If so, something's got to change. Something's got to change. We've allowed busyness, obstacles, recreation, sports, a lack of passion for the things of God to get in the way of our walk with Jesus. Through it all. I think of the persecuted church. They remain strong, stronger than the non-persecuted church because the cost is so high they got to keep their eyes on Jesus. And he really is their all in all, as he should be for all of us. I think of my friends, the Ethiopian pastors and evangelists through it all. I think of Paul and Barnabas through it all. I think of many of you through it all. It's not enough to start well, to hear well done, good and faithful servant. You and I need to finish well. We don't get to retire from Christian work. We don't get to say, I raised my kids and now it's somebody else's time to to serve in this or that or those capacities. That's a non-biblical, it's an unbiblical point of view. We are called to serve until God calls us home through it all. Some of you have done so well with this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the model (coughs) that Paul and Barnabas have given us. A model of serving through it all. I thank you for this weekend where so many served you here through Feed My Starving Children, giving up opportunities to do something else, to serve you, to honor you, to care for people who don't have what we have. May this be the way we live, and may we honor you. You are a great God, and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.